Good evening. My name is Clancy. I'm an alcoholic. I'm very glad to be here tonight. Glad to be safe and sane and sober, as I like to say, because I didn't used to be, and I may not be again sometime, but I am tonight. And I'm. Uh, this is really a remarkable co- congregation tonight. It's. Uh, we have. I mean, this weekend, Bob has put together a remarkable program. I think of. Uh, I don't know. I've never been to a place where there are more distinguished speakers taking part in a in a program and I've, I've heard them all at least five times I think and some of them more than that and uh, there are still people who I would get up in the rain and drive across town to here if I had an opportunity the uh, it's an interesting thing we're here to discuss the steps and the steps are uh, I should say something else too I doubt very much if there are any newcomers here we're, there's no one here who's come to learn about the steps there's a bunch of old timers who maybe we're going to tune up a little bit, but uh, we really don't have to talk about the, what the, where they came from. But here's the interesting thing: I was sitting listening to what he just read, Casey just read that last reading, and it's exactly correct. It is 100% correct. It is absolutely true. And I know from my own experience. And yet, that very same literature type of reading kept me out of AA. Year after year after year after year, that going through a new arch, finding a new God, simpletons, dummies. I can get that reading a lot. To me, the first three steps, we often take them for granted. Yeah, the first, yeah, they're, they're not very romantic. But to me, they've always been the cornerstone of Alcoholics Anonymous, at least for people like me. They are the most important things. They are the gateway. Unless you get in that gate, it doesn't make difference how pretty, how pretty the scenes are inside. You, if you don't get in, you'll never find out. And you can come to A and sit there as I did time after time after time and just get gradually more frustrated and more anxiety ridden and think, what the hell am I doing here with these people and leave again and drink. And it's almost impossible to describe that to anybody. Look, we're all doing well. Why aren't you, why isn't this happening for you? I don't know. I just maybe I see it more clearly than you do. This is this doesn't mean anything. This is like church. This is like all the philosophers who sit around starving to death and talking about the meaning of life. The people who go to India to find out how to live from people who are starving to death. You know, what a great, great move. <laughs> I uh, <clears throat> and so I well, I had a great, great antipathy over a period of time to Alcoholics Anonymous and I never really thought Alcoholics Anonymous would ever work for me because I'd stayed sober briefly here and there and I had a <laughs> we had that set up to in- indicate my infallibility <clears throat> but I think that the first three steps are the most difficult to accept for people like me. And I know there's a lot of people like me because I've worked with a lot of people like me over the years who came to AA. And there are some people who come to AA and the first three steps are quite clear. They're, yes, I belong here. Alcohol is my problem and I have a problem not drinking. And I, there's a power here that I can return to and it's going to be wonderful and I'm going to turn my life over to God. And they, they flourish. But there are ten times as many who fight it and can't make it. They maybe eventually, some of them make it, but most of them don't. And you know, 
we can hype each other all we want to about how many how big AA is, how wonderful it's become. But you and I both know on the front lines, it's still as great a battle. Everyone has to be converted, and a lot of people don't wish to be converted. The wisdom is there, but the, uh, I mean, when I go to work every morning, I get up in a house out by the ocean in Los Angeles, and I drive downtown, and I park in the basement of our where I work, and I walk around the building, and I step over the bodies of men, women, and children, dying from alcoholism and drug addiction and craziness and abandonment. And I have an answer that will solve their problem. And they decline to accept it. And it used to make me crazy. Why can't you accept this? Then I remember, why didn't I accept it? Because I was unwilling to take actions I did not believe in, that I thought were stupid. And that is the number one cause of death from alcoholism, as far as I can tell. I know you mean well when you give me this information, but you don't understand. My case is different. My problem is not alcohol. I can't return to God. Uh, there's nothing here that, uh, that's very nice, it's nice, but it doesn't help me. And so I, as a result of that, as most of you know, you've heard me talk, the day came when I was thrown out of the front door of a skid row mission in downtown Los Angeles, and I stood in the street corner with my bleeding and sick and desperate, no clothes, I'd lost my clothes, I'd lost my ID, I'd lost everything. I couldn't think of anyone in America who would accept a collect phone call from me except my mother, and my stepfather would not allow her to talk to me. And I had a terrible feeling. It's a terrible feeling when you realize there's no friendly direction. I'll tell you, that's a frightening thing. And it's raining, and I was cold and sick. But for one thing, things I'd learned about in the almost 10 years I had slipped around AA and went and left and went and left and went and left, is that I learned one thing. Whenever you look terrible... There's only one place really that'll accept you, and that's an AA club. It's the only place in the world where the, the worse you look, the more they like it, you know. Oh, this one's mine, Jim. <laughs> and so I found out where the AA club was, and it turned out to, I didn't know where it was. I found later, I counted some years later, seven and a half miles away, through the rain, through Wilshire Boulevard, long walk. And I just walked, and I'm sure some of the people in this room have done that, made that terrible discovery. When there's no one to call on, you have to do what you have to do, no matter whether you can or not. You have to do it. And I got to this club, and I hung around there, and it was dreadful. And I wound up as a better of, uh, that, that first night I was there, they had a meeting, and I had lurked, stayed out of sight, and I ate about four pounds of cake, because I could chew that. And uh, then they had a meeting on gratitude, and I almost vomited it up again. And just... Just but dreadful, dreadful. I wound up living in the back seat of an abandoned car at the end of the AA Club parking lot. A guy named Joe Quinn had left a 49 Merc there the summer before and let me sleep in that. The club did. And the, man, the manager of the club, a guy named John Sullivan, said, uh, you know, kid, you're supposed to be a member to come in here during the day. On weekends, you can come in all day. But on Monday, if you was right, you have to be a member. But you're such a mess, you'll die out there in that rain. He says, but you, what you have to, your rules are this. You can't ask anybody for money, and you can't make any more of your smart, nasty remarks, and you got to go to a meeting every night, or else you can't. And that was really dreadful, because I felt, God, I've been to meetings and all these success stories, and I came through the golden archway, and, and oh, God, I wish I were stupid. I wish I could. <laughs> Why have I been cursed with intelligence? 
And I, uh, I remember lying in that abandoned car at night, still rain day after day, and I was cold and sick. And my mouth was bleeding. And I remember thinking, maybe I'm dead. Maybe, maybe this is what hell is. Maybe hell isn't fire and brimstone. Maybe it's just being sick and cold and your mouth hurts and everywhere you go behind you, you hear people laughing and ridiculing you and there's nothing you can do about it except just keep moving. That's a terror. And I had no idea that would be my sobriety time. I didn't intend for it to be. I didn't want it to be. I had no intention of becoming sober, staying sober. I just wanted to get live another day to see if I could get out of there when it stopped raining. And I... Uh, I, you know, I've thought about it many times. Right? What would what would create? I had no desire to stay sober. I mean, I would like to be comfortable, but I, I hate pain. But that's to me, sobriety does not indicate comfort. I stayed sober once because I was in jail one night. I went to jail a lot overnight. I'm not a big felon like some of the speakers here, <laughs> Sandy Beach and that crowd. But, But I've gone to jail because I, I have a tendency, when I get to a certain level of alcohol, I have a tendency to counsel police officers. And I point out their errors and they throw me in jail. And I came out of jail one morning and said, I had a down to an hour, I could go home and take a shower and go to work. And uh, the guy said, boy, you should have stayed home last night, your little son died. And, well, you were out drunk and we couldn't find you. And it just about killed me. I had said some little girls, the little boy, and he, he was an apple of my eye and he died and I just couldn't stand it. And I remember the, uh, still remember the, taking, putting my hand on his casket and nobody was around saying, John Nimbusland, this will never happen again, I promise you. This will never happen again. And uh, I went back to Texas where I was working and I, I really watched my drinking for a while. And then it started to get bad and pointed out to me that I was getting in trouble again. And I stopped. And I stopped for my son John and I maintained sobriety and it was great. Uh, I remember this, taking my daughters, coming home after work, going, I was living in El Paso at that time, and going out of town, there were big ups and downs. We were laughing about that, up and down, and fighting the cars, and doing things together, first we hadn't done for years, and I didn't have to go to Juarez or downtown El Paso getting drunk again. And it was just ideal, almost like when Easter, somebody died, but for, he died for our sins. And then uh, something happened. This happened to me with amazing regularity. I thought it would not happen this time, but it always did. Someone snuck into my bedroom in the middle of the night one night and put an invisible spring in my gut. And the next day they start to tighten it. And it doesn't come out as, I need a drink. It comes out as just a little growing restlessness. Just a little irritability. Just a little tired of the sermons all the time about what I did. Come on, get off it. And go to work in the morning and see that these people are kind of crappy people, really. And, it, and I don't much like this town. And uh, my kids, are, I'm doing it for them. Their noise starts to get, Mary, take your sisters and go to your room, for Christ's sake. I'm sorry, we'll play later. I just hate myself, but I don't know what to do. But I can't drink, say, I'm never going to, I promised my little boy that wouldn't happen again. And one day my wife took the children to church and... I just put the car in the garage, hooked up the hose and the exhaust pipe, turned the motor and went to sleep and died. And a neighbor happened to be watching out of his window having a cup of coffee. And I didn't come out and the motor was running, so he ambled over and found me dead in the car. And they pulled me out and beat on my chest and rushed me to the hospital. 
examined me, determined I was seriously mentally ill, and committed me to the state insane asylum for an indefinite period up to the rest of my life. Now, that's how I get what I have find long-term sobriety. That's not anything I'm ever looking for. It's a dreadful, dreadful thing because it's a bad, painful thing. Now, why would I stay sober this time? I've thought about it and talked different things about it over the years. But I've, I've evolved, I think, what I believe to be the facts as best I can think of. It was due to because I had to go to those damn meetings at night. And in one of those meetings, a couple of those meetings, I saw a guy that I had seen in the movies, a movie actor. A movie actor? What does movie actor tell you? Rich and famous. Uh, maybe he needs a new friend. <laughs> I could just make a score and get out of here and I'd be all right. And so I went over and uh, he, was, he didn't warm up to me much. And a couple of days later, they start doing what they always do where there's fanatics, you know. Time to get a sponsor. Better get a sponsor, boy. You, you really need a sponsor. Ha, 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 I'd have a lot of sponsors. I had the editor of the El Paso Times as my sponsor. I had a, a pediatrician in Dallas that I asked to be my sponsor because my children needed a doctor that would work free. <laughs> I've had a lot of sponsors. But so I thought, well, here's my chance. I went up to old Bob, the actor. I said, Bob, I really admire you. Would you be my sponsor? He said, sure, kid, I want you to do what I tell you. Oh, sure, Bob. <laughs> you know, they said he wasn't a very good actor. I, I found out later he's only been in three movies, character roles. He's done some work at the radio. I've been in more movies than he ever was, but I didn't know that. Here was a guy, and I... Uh, they said he wasn't a good actor, but he was a good actor because he acted nicely in meetings. And that took a lot of acting for him, I'll tell you. <laughs> he, he turned out to be a right-wing fascist AA pig of the worst sort. Just do this, do that. <laughs> Remember thinking, why am I taking this crap from this guy? Only one reason. He was the only meal ticket I could see to get out of there. And it turned out later he didn't like me. And I, uh, I understand that, because I don't want to brag, but I was the worst type of newcomer there is in AA. And I know that's true because I've sponsored a couple of them. <laughs> and they just, when they walk into the room and say, hi, you just wish you had an AK-47 and say, here's hi. <laughs> and if what? That type of newcomer is a person who has been around AA year after year after year, keeps drinking, knows all about it. There's nothing you can tell them. Let me tell you about the, oh, I know all that. I heard that. <laughs> and just you just want to strangle him. But he tried to be nice to me because he was a good man. He took me with him a couple times to go out to speak, and he, he talked to me sometimes around the club. And he, uh, I, I thought he was a... I came to kind of like him a little bit, not much. I was just waiting to make a score, though, so I could get out of there. And one night he said something. I don't know if he said it to me or someone else, but he said it. I remember him saying, as long as you think your problem is alcohol, you're going to die drunk. I thought, what? I said, Bob, why do you say things like that for? It's embarrassing to me. I mean, you're my sponsor. You're supposed to talk smart. Of course the problem is alcohol. Everybody knows that. He said, no, it isn't. If your problem is alcohol, you shouldn't even be an AA. I thought, uh-oh. Another Screen Actors Guild breakthrough here. 
I said, Jesus, Bob, where do you get that crap? He said, uh, that's just the way it is. I said, that, that's nonsense, Bob. They talk about drinking all the time and how to stop drinking. He said, that's right. But that's not the problem. What is the problem, Bob? He says, psycho-cybernetics? Is that, can you tell me what it is? He says, no. He says, uh, you little smart aleck. He said, it doesn't, has nothing to do with that. It's something that sounds like alcohol. And a lot of people think it is. They have a lot of difficulty. But it's not alcohol. It's something called alcoholism. And, oh, Jesus, Bob. Don't play word games with me. I look terrible, but I'm smarter than hell. Alcohol? Alcoholism? Hooray, I'm cured. I'm cured. Shut up, he explained. <laughs> and over a period of time, he, he explained it to me. And he, uh, he was just, he gave a long time. I ignored most of it, I guess, but I, but I remember it stuck in my mind, and it didn't change my life at all. But it began to make me look at things a little differently. He said, kid, if your problem is alcohol, what you do is you stop drinking and you clean up your act and you're home free. Happens every day. I said, that doesn't work, Bob. That's stupid. I've tried that a thousand times. That's right. That's because your problem is not alcohol. It is called alcoholism. It's a strange thing. The difference is this. You stop drinking when your problem is alcohol and you stop drinking. In alcoholism, you stop drinking and clean up your act. And the net result eventually is always a painful life that you can't stand. I said, Jesus, Bob. Nobody ever explained that to me before. They said, if you stop drinking, you feel better. I said, no. In this mind-consuming, perception-distorting, bodily-eroding, fatal thing called alcoholism, you'll discover that stopping drinking has no long-term effect on your life other than to gradually make it so painful you can't stand it. I said, my God, I never heard that before. I said, <laughs> and that really made me think about something. Because for 10 years I've been hearing, stop drinking, you'll get better. And it never did. Stop drinking makes it worse. And here's a guy saying that stop drinking and alcoholism makes it worse. I couldn't believe it. I said, Jesus, Bob. If that's the case, uh, if it's so bad, why do these people drink it? Why do these alcoholics drink it? He says, they don't drink it because it's bad. Now, you say you've been around A all this time? Yeah, have you heard the idea that alcoholics are people who get an unnatural reaction to alcohol? Said, of course. He says, it's a phenomenon of craving and they can't stop. He said, nah, that's podium talk. The unnatural effect is this, kid. And he had a Coke in his hand. I'll use my coffee, finally. He said, uh, when I drink alcohol, it almost instantly changes my perception of life. <laughs> when I have a few drinks, it almost instantly changes my relationship to the world around me. When I have a few drinks, it almost instantly makes me taller and more self-contained and them smaller and less threatening. I said, Jesus, Bob, what's wrong with that? <laughs> he said, because it isn't really happening, you idiot. <laughs> and if you're like these, if you're like us, eventually you will drink to excess. You'll drink 
sets up this phenomenon of craving. I don't understand it at all. Nobody ever has. But eventually you get sober again. I've thought about that a lot. You know, no one has ever to this day come up with an explanation of the phenomenon of craving. Now, I look at my life. And maybe there must be other people, as best I can tell. When you're feeling that you've got to have some something to fill those holes to overcome your inadequacy and fear and despair and separation, you can do it by taking a few drinks. And after you take a few drinks, it's better. But you start to sag a little bit. So you instinctively have another drink to hold it. And you keep going. You see guys so drunk they can't stand up. Say, hey, give me a drink. You know, what do you want a drink for? They don't want a drink. They're trying to hold it. They're trying to, they don't even know. Don't even know. I'm not aware. I never was aware. I'm trying to hold this thing. But that's what it is. But eventually you're drunk and you get sober. I said, Bob, okay. I understand that. Then now you know that drinking is eating your lunch. Why would you drink now? He said, that's the other part of it, kid. That's the other part of it. I guess you never learned much. When people, a guy gave me a tape of a talk I gave when I was about three years sober a few years ago. And I heard him, I heard me describe this. I hadn't talked about it in 35, 40 years. And I just staggered how correct it is. I've been talking about it ever since. He said, uh, when people grow up, you face a lot of problems. Born, grow up, problems, situations, conflicts. People hurt your feelings. You learn how to deal with that. You learn how to get along with people. You learn what you got to give to get what you want. You have to learn to live in the world. He said, that process is called maturing. And if you become a mature individual, you have a comfortable life. You can hold jobs. You can get along with the neighbors. Get along with your family. Play with the kids. Go on vacations. Have fun. It's a great life. So this almost never happens to alcoholics. Why not, Bob? Because when we have problems that don't find instant resolutions, we have found that a few drinks gets rid of them. Here's to you, household finance. Here's to you, bitch. I never liked you anyway. Hey, Mr. Collins, take your job and shove it up your nose, will you? <laughs> and it does work. But what I don't realize, I'm establishing a closet full of immature emotional reactions, conditioned, almost the conditioned reflexes like Dr. Pavlov's dog. And uh, we call them alcoholic emotions. They are childish emotions. And... If you're like me, the time comes. This came to my life several times. I'm tired of being taken this crap all the time. I'm going to straighten out. I'm going to, I'm going to start going to work in, in the morning. I'm not going to stop at night to get drunk. I'm going to come home and do things and do take care of things, work a little longer, make some money again. Great. And never realizing that it is impossible for me to do that. Never. That it's impossible. Why? Because sooner or later. Someone will trigger some of those emotions. Someone will hurt my feelings. Someone will put me down. Someone will make me look as though I'm kind of dumb. And I react! And I might not, as I get older and wiser, I might not physically react. I might not scream at him or hit him as I did when I was young. But it's there, and the tension's up. And I 
find ways if I can get equal, even with that son of a bitch somewhere along the line. And the pressures mount, and the pressures mount, and the pressures mount. And uh, there's only one I've tried. I've spent thousands of dollars in psychoanalysis to find a way to get rid of those pressures. I've read books. I've tried to do things. I've listened to recordings of philosophers. But nothing works like two or three drinks. And that's why I drink. I don't drink because I'm a drinker. I drink because I'm a feeler. But how do you explain that? And the day comes when I'm going to drink. In fact, some doctors who study alcoholics say that people like us get to a point where you literally must drink to preserve your sanity. Isn't that ironic? And I drink, and then sometimes I drink too much again. They say, see, your problem was alcohol, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, I guess it was. (laughs) But inside you just want to shriek, no, it wasn't. You don't understand. My problem is not alcohol. My problem is idiots like you that won't let up on me. And drink again. Maybe go to AA. Maybe it'll be different in this town. Till you find the guy who's... I don't know if I ever heard this talk, but it seemed to me this was the epitome of AA talk. I stayed drunk around the clock for 20 years, night and day. One day I walked through that door... They told me to put the plug in the jug, and I did. And I've just never been so goddamn happy. (laughs) Either that or it's a religious preachment. And I, uh, I said, Jesus, Bob, nobody ever explained that to me before. That's the story of my life for the last numbers, all during the 1950s and 40s. And Jesus, Bob. He said, there's a name for people like you. I said, oh, what could it be, Bob? He said, you're an alcoholic. I said, I'm an alcoholic. I'll be damned. I'd been going to AA for 10 years, and I knew I wasn't an alcoholic for any number of reasons. First of all, because my problem wasn't alcohol. When I drank, it didn't make me crazy. It helped me. There's, I, they, those people couldn't quit. I always could quit. My problem was to stick in that spring in my gut a few days later, but I could quit. And on and If what you're saying is Bob is an alcoholic, that's, a, that's what I am. He said, I guess you are, kid. I said, why doesn't AA explain it that way? Simply, it's direct instead of this crap, this pseudo-religious obsession of the mind and allergy of the body, all this crap. He says, they do, kid. Look up there on the wall where it says after number one. They ask you to admit you're having some problems with alcohol. Then there's a dash, which in the English language means end of thought, beginning of new thought. Then it asks you to admit you're having some problems without alcohol. Huh. <laughs> and that was in December of 1958, I guess. I was sober about six weeks. And I, uh, I came to believe I was an alcoholic. It didn't change my life. You may, I never had another drink. You think, is his wife, life turned out wonderfully. Not at all. I was still a mess. Because I was had no tools to live in the world, my defense was always a smart aleck answer, sarcastic, intellectual put down. I didn't get along with people. I was wearing hand-me-down clothes, crappy clothes, and a guy put me, let me sleep in his basement. And his wife didn't like my attitude. She made me get out and I went back and had a band. Just terrible. 
One of the reasons I guess when I look back why I didn't drink is because now that I was an alcoholic, I'd been hearing so much about what happens to alcoholics when they slip, I couldn't afford the risk. If it's this bad sober, Jesus, if I slip, what'll happen, you know? And, uh, but I stayed sober. And I, uh, sometimes it was nip and tuck. You know, they, uh, an analogy I remember thinking years ago, in the early days of aircraft, they, these old guys would be up in their planes and they'd be flying around and, and the one thing that couldn't, was undoubtedly fatal, was the tailspin. When they got into a tailspin, I'll let the pilot talk about it if I'm wrong, but they got into a tailspin and they would pull back that stick and try to pull back and just boom! And one day outside of Washington, some army, young army pilot got into a tailspin and he tried to pull the stick back and he couldn't pull out of it and he thought, I might as well just die quick and he pushed the stick forward which would make you dive even faster. And that day they discovered that's how you come out of a tailspin. You come out the other side. It's still the way they do it in airplanes. And even after that, there were still people dying in wrecks because, well, I, they say put the stick forward. I haven't got time for philosophy. I want to pull the sandwich back, you know. Boom. But eventually everybody got to know it. And that's the way my life was sometimes. Has been several times, especially my early sobriety, where I knew the answer, but I knew I had to pull my answer I do, and eventually you push the stick forward. I've come out of those with grass stains on the top of my head, boy. <laughs> and back at the meeting the next week, explaining to people, asking them why they don't do what we do to stay sober. But I stayed sober. And I, my sponsor made me get little jobs. That's some little job. I got fired. And I had smart aleck attitudes. And, and, uh, but I was, I remember one thing that saved me a lot of money. The guy gave me a razor and I shaved in the second floor of the club in cold water and soap every day. And uh, eventually I moved into a nice apartment where I had warm water. But I still use soap. I did tonight when I shaved it. Think of those fools spending money on after shave lotion. <laughs> you cut yourself once in a while, but that's for you. But the problem was this. The first step, for some people who could accept it, for people like me, it was such an enormous thing to understand. They're not saying your problem is alcohol. They're saying that you eventually have to drink because sobriety is unbearable, and you eventually have to stop because drinking is unbearable. Then you must eventually drink because sobriety is unbearable. It's not a matter of going to jail or insane asylums or all these things, which a lot of us have done, but that isn't necessary at all. I sponsored guys who uh, are very famous and rich and doing very well. Never was any trouble that like that. But they hurt as badly as I ever did. The trouble is, as I went along a little while, of course, what happens to you and you're an AA and you're new, they start, these old fanatics start with the next thing. Well, better start working on the steps. Jesus. I had to tell Bob, I can't, I can't return to God, Bob. And I had a good reason for that. I always knew I couldn't return to God. Not because I didn't believe in God, just the opposite. I believed in God. I was raised in a, as a God-fearing little boy in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I know where God lives. He slowly circles the Our Savior's Lutheran Church in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Gives it to sinners. Pow! Catholics. Pow! And I had become one and married the other. And it was just... 
And at first, when I first started going there, I didn't think much about it, but, but the last time I got sober, I thought about it. Because I've broken all ten commandments now. I've broken all ten. And no matter how you slice it, there's no way coming back from that. If God exists, I am damned. And you can talk to your blue in the face and tell me all sorts of hyperbole, but that is exactly the way it is. It's like Hitler said, you give me their minds till they're 12. And it'll be a part of them that's going to be Nazi as long as they live. That branding. And I... Sometimes I like A, but when I start talking about God and all these wonderful things that happen with God as they read tonight, I just, I don't want to hear that crap. Why do, why do they spoil A with all that crap? And I explained to Bob, Bob, I, I can't return to God. I wish I could, I, you know, but I can't. He says, nothing in A says you have to return to God. Oh, to a power greater than myself, Bob. Does that fool the other boys and girls? It doesn't fool me. You know damn well who that is. He says, it doesn't say that. I should read it. Came to believe. Nothing in AA ever asks you to return to anything. Because you're going back into sickness if you do that. We're trying to pull you out of it. You come to believe in something. Can't you come to believe in God? I said, no, I can't, Bob. I'd like you, but I can't. He said, can't you believe? You, you believe in AA? I said, no, I like it better than I used to, but not much. <laughs> he says, you think I'm doing better than you are? I said, of course you are, Bob. He said, congratulations, I'm your new higher power. <laughs> and he became my higher power. And I could accept that, because he couldn't send me to hell. He tried. <laughs> I remember on the club, people say, there's that crazy bastard who thinks his sponsor's God. <laughs> I didn't think he was a God, but I came... I'll tell you what happened. I'll tell you what happened. In my early days of sobriety, it was so painful. I'd get these little jobs, and I'd lose them, and I'd get these. And I'd, I felt so bad and so inadequate and so terrible so much of the time that I did something I had never done before. I'd never sunk to this before. I began, to, I began telling Bob when I really felt bad how weak I really was, that I really was nothing behind my facade. I was nothing. I was weak. You know, strong people don't mind admitting their weaknesses, but weak people hate to admit it because that's all you got. You're seeing nothing, pal. And he never once ridiculed me or laughed at me or joked or made fun of me. Didn't talk about me to others that I know of. And a strange thing happened in those first months, I guess. Somehow in my mind, I began to think, Jesus, Bob seems to know how I feel. And I had never known someone who I believed knew how I felt. My dad said he did. My doctor said he did. My psychiatrist, my minister, a lot of people. Oh, we know how you feel. But you just, it doesn't take long to discover they know how you feel at all. You have to say thanks, but he just wants to get your hands off me. Now, what's so important about having somebody that knows how you feel? And it gets down to this, and my for people like me. Everyone in this room has had enough advice to last them 10,000 years. People give us advice unasked for. Un- Here's what I think you ought to do. <laughs> uh, geez, you get so much, you just have to, you just learn to shine them on. Yeah. Oh, thanks a lot. That really is important. I'll try that. <laughs> get out of here. You. But if you can find somebody that you believe knows how you feel, that advice is transformed into meaningful information. And you may find yourself doing things you would never do 
if anyone else in the world said them. I still remember standing at the Brentwood meeting about six blocks from where sometime later O.J. Simpson did not kill his wife. <laughs> we sat at that meeting, drinking my coffee, and Bob said, See that woman over there? Yes, I fear. I don't like her. He said, I want you to apologize to her. Why should I? Someone told me at the Monday night meeting at the club you called her a bitch. She is a bitch. Why do you think she's a bitch? She told her new girl to stay away from me. Well, she's right. You apologize. I can't think of a person in the world would have told me that I wouldn't have said, screw you. Over there and abase myself to that old bag so she can go around tell all her friends how she made me into nothing so she can laugh at me and ridicule me some more. That old beast. I'd rather die. But someone who believed knew how I felt told me that. <laughs> Sorry. You bitch. <laughs> I understand that you're, you're thinking about quitting your job. Jesus, Bob, you got me certain stuffing envelopes for a dollar and nine cents an hour. I used to beat something. I'm a good writer. He said, well, you stay on the job until you get a better job. Oh, Bob, I can't stand it. Well, then get a better job. <laughs> I understand you didn't go to the Friday night meeting. Jesus, Bob, it's a big click. They all well to do and they laugh at people like me and they ridicule me. I would Three years ago, I wouldn't hire those people to mow my lawn, but they, they got me. They treat me like I'm a piece of crap. Or maybe they know something you don't know. <laughs> and on and on and on. And somehow as a result, I look back, I thought it was just coincidence, but my perception seemed to get a little better. I didn't get any better, but the rest of the world shaped up little by little. Which I guess the point of A is to make the world shape up. And I, uh, I began to do what he said. I, a little bit more without fighting in my mind. But that second step, in case there's anybody here, I doubt it, who still fights it. Because there are parts of it to fight. There's something else that in that you return, you come to believe it's not okay to what? To restore me to sanity. Will you please define sanity for me? You can read ten medical textbooks and they'll have ten different definitions of sanity. What the hell is sanity? When I was in the nut house in that ward where the guy laughed all the time, he's never going to get out of that nut house until he stops laughing. It isn't because it makes you feel good. What is sanity? Well, it's hard to define. Insanity, however, is easy to define. When the mind is under sufficient conflict, so intense conflict, irremediable conflict, irresolvable conflict, it can't stand it. Sometimes in an effort to maintain its neural integrity, it will resolve itself by making portions of reality look different than they are. That is called psychosis. Psychosis is when you see things differently than other people see it, or interpret them differently perhaps. And it resolves that terrible conflict. And people in AA, we all say, well, I was psychotic. No, it wasn't. Once you become truly psychotic, you just about always stay psychotic. That's not something you come in and out of. We get very neurotic and pained and think we're in terrible shape, but 
Psychosis is something entirely different. And uh, this psychosis is a dreadful thing. But the interesting thing about it is that alcoholics almost never become psychotic. Isn't that funny? You think people like us, neurotic, childish little pukes would become psychotic a lot. And uh, why not? Why don't we become psychotic? Because when it gets bad enough, long enough, I drink alcohol. And it alters my perception of reality. I have the ability to induce temporary psychosis. Never knowing it, have no idea. Hmm. And then get sober again and go back. True psychosis is when, you know, sometimes when the whole thing is psychotic, they put you away. Sometimes you just rifle about something. Like you read in the paper. Well, I lived next door to this guy for 10 years. and uh, Nice guy and his family came home one night and just took his rifle and killed his wife and all his kids and killed himself. Something triggered that psychosis in that man. Now, alcoholics don't become psychotic because they have the ability to drink and relieve their conflict. So, when I begin to understand that, I begin to understand what the, I'm sure it wasn't, no one thought about this when they wrote that step. But the step bears quite, quite true. I have to come to believe that there's some power here, whatever that might be, will enable me to live in the world without having to drink to stand it. And that really is what it boiled down to for me. I know as the years went along, of course, my appreciation of the steps matured a little bit and I saw a little more th- fleshed about. But still, that is the basic tenet. And the only problem you have with that step is a lot of new people going through it think they have to know what that power is. And you have to explain to them, no, you don't have to know what the power is. You don't have to understand the power. All you have to believe is all these people are here. They didn't come here to lie to you. The powers worked for them. All you have to try to come to believe there's some power here, whatever the hell it is, that's going to enable you to stay sober comfortably. And if you can do that, you've worked the second step, in my opinion. Then the third step gets a little bad because it gets quite religious. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. What does that mean? That means over to God as we understood him. I could not take that step in my first few months. I had to rewrite it in my mind, I guess. I took a vow. I will try to do what my sponsor says. And I look back an absolute surrender to the third step that time. I did what my sponsor said. I tried to do what he said. I think if there was a if there was a line of demarcation, when I was about six months sober, I'd got fired off another job. I thought I was going to hold this one, I got fired. And I I decided to commit suicide. Goes back temporarily for a few days, sleeping in that abandoned car again. And Jesus People I got sober with are doing well and they're all people are back to laughing at me again. And I just had to kill myself. I just going to kill myself. I just I and but I I never lose my basic romanticism. This time I remembered a star is born where Frederick March walked into the ocean and they were all sorry later. So I started to walk to the ocean and God I just felt like Hamlet walking the battlements of Elsinore. I just thought I must have been a very dramatic figure. I'm sure people going by said, what's wrong with that jerk? You know. But I couldn't find the ocean as it worked out. 
I knew it was west, but I, I walked and walked, and I finally stopped in the gas station and said, Jesus, pal, where's the ocean? He said, well, you're just in West Beverly Hills. You have to go out here past the Veterans Hospital, and then about five more miles after that. And I thought, well, screw that. I don't mind dying, but I'm not going to walk myself all afternoon. It got so bad, I decided to call my sponsor. I called him. I said, Bobby, they fired me as a dishwasher today. He said, for God's sakes, can't you do anything right? Let me explain something, why that was. It wasn't as bad as it sounds. I was washing dishes, the Gaiety Delicatessen on Sunset Boulevard, and I swear the busboys were bringing in more dishes than the waitresses were taken out. And it made me think they're getting them from other restaurants to humiliate me because I'm an Anglo. So I just stacked them up. Well, wrong count. Bad, bad count. I said, Bob, I just can't take anymore. He says, why don't you write your inventory like I told you? And I just told him the week before. I said, Bob, I've taken my inventory with psychiatrists, trained people. Why do I want to take my inventory with an out-of-work actor? What the hell is that going to do for me? That made him cross. Everything made him cross. Mom, I said, I know you mean well, but God, I'm a depressive by nature. I've been much my life. I've gone to terrible depressions. And going, writing down terrible negative things about myself just plunges me deeper into it. I just know that. That doesn't help me. I need something much beyond that. In my judgment, I need something to break me out of it. He said, in your judgment, who cares about your judgment? You're living in the back seat of an abandoned car, for Christ's sake. If I wanted your judgment, I'd come down and put my head in the back window and ask you for it. He said, you're a loser. <laughs> and I slammed that phone down. I came out of that phone booth, and I turned left. Thank God, if I turned right, I'd have been in the ocean in three steps. I got to the A club. I said, Sullivan, give me some paper. I'm going to write my inventory. And he gave me some paper. I wrote, oh, I wrote terrible things. I never would tell the psychiatrist these things. He said, why don't you tell your psychiatrist? Because when you're paying that kind of money, you can't risk rejection. That's why you don't tell your psychiatrist. <laughs> I don't want some little wussy to say to me, you did what, sir? Get out of my office. But first of all, wash off that chair, will you? You know. And I wrote this terrible stuff. I just vomited on the paper. I have your I got done. I felt a little better. At least I proved writing an inventory didn't work. And I jammed it under the back seat of the car. And a couple of days later, I said, "Well, you're going to take your inventory today." I, I don't think I really. Am. I'm feeling a little better, Bob. I won't need to take it quite yet. I'm. I'm feeling. Really, I'm working on a job application. And I. He said, "Oh, shut up! I'm coming down." He got in the car and he drove from Santa Monica to Oxnard. He gave me a flashlight, and I read this stuff. Oh God. It read much worse than I remembered. I was just, I thought, he's going to make me get out of this car and I'd have to walk 40 miles back from Oxnard. That's what happened to me. And I got done. Well, I thought, Bob, he says, you're sure you're done? <laughs> That's the best thing you've done since you got sober, kid. And I said, thought it was. <laughs> but I've taken that same trip over 200 times since then up that road with some other little puke over there with the flashlight some in this room and uh, you'd think you'd hear all sorts of they're all the same they're all the same good inventory I mean the specifics vary all over the lot 
But always that sense of inadequacy and despair and guilt and resentment, all those things that mount up and make us so equal all over the world. And uh, it's just an amazing, amazing thing. You begin to understand, my God, that's what A is about. It's dealing with people who are alike at that level. But you got to get to that level to find out. And you don't, if you don't get those first three steps, I'll tell you. And so over the, uh, over a period of time, I, uh, remember these steps. And I've done all the, I've made amends to people. I've flown across the country to make amends to people. Flew to Texas one time for one of my ex-employers where I'd really burned him off. I said, I've come to make amends to you. He said, what for? About time. He said, what about time? I said, well, I'm an alcoholic and I was an alcoholic. He said, I didn't, you're not an alcoholic. I said, what do you think made me do those things? He said, because you're a son of a bitch. And I almost went over the desk and throttled him. I thought, no, I'll have to explain that to my sponsor. <laughs> but some funny thing, I'm sure that you'll hear when Kent gets around talking to step nine, how beneficial, what a great miracle happens there. But I've done all these things, and I've tried to help others from time to time with varying degrees of success. But to me, when I have bad days, when I sometimes, when I get weak and heavy laden, that's a great phrase from my church, Weak and heavy laden, boy, some days there's weak. Some days, you know, by 10 o'clock in the morning, there is no hope for this day whatsoever. You just keep your mouth shut and keep thinking, come on, midnight, come on. <laughs> Nothing going to help. But I, I use those first three steps as a trampoline in my life. And I, I see them differently than I did when I was a sullen, neurotic little snot in 1958. But they're still there. Because the, the basic facts are there for alcoholics of my type and your type, as the book says, our type. Not alcoholics who can quit and stop, but alcoholics who can quit and must always drink again. And the, the premise is always there. Alcohol, to me, I cannot handle it. And I've watched so many people try it. And of myself, sobriety becomes untenable where I have to drink. And here, there's still a power, a power that's changed a great deal in my life. No longer Bob, who died, became eventually Alcoholics Anonymous. Remember the day I got a new sponsor and I, he never told me what to do once, like the old sponsor did, but he led an example he was a more spiritual man. I tried to pray to see what would happen, and I prayed. And as he pointed out to me, he said, I don't know what you're afraid of, young man. He, kid, he called me. He said, uh, you're not important enough for God to hate. And I never thought of that, but that was very true. I, he said, God loves you like he loves everybody else. And we all, I believe that. I believe he loves me and he loves you like I love my children. Maybe much more than that because I'm too fallible. But you might think, you know, if God loves us all, why, why are those alcoholics dying on the street that you step over? Well, he loves them too, but he loved me when I lay on that street. Something inside of them will not allow them to take actions they don't believe in. But I came to believe in God, and I came to, I've prayed earnestly to him every day for 45 years. And I really live with some degree of peace in my heart, and I, more than I ever thought. But the whole point is that the trampoline must always be there. Some, of myself, I get caught up in my own 
nonsense, sometimes my ego, sometimes the other end of it, my depression, sometimes my feelings of difference. And I think go to hell. I just have to put, that's what I'm here for. There's a power here, and I better start doing what it says. And I simplify my life. Some people, I've never had the ability to become, I guess because I'm a type A personality, but I've never had the ability to spend hours in meditation or thinking things. I, I admire people to do that. I have, I have a thing in my office that's very good. It says, most of you have heard that thing. It's about, dear God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. You know, And I think the man who wrote that, Merton, had just spent 13 years in the Gethsemane Monastery in silence, pondering God's will. And he got out and rode that. And if he hasn't found it in 13 years of silence, I'm not going to find it by 6 o'clock tonight. <laughs> so I have to go by, I have to go by conditioned influence. One of the great things, of course, that's good about AA is when you work with people, you sometimes have a tendency to act better. It's like teaching your kids to drive. You never drive any better in your life than when you drive your teacher kids to drive. I stop, go to lunch. Better watch out, the light is yellow. <laughs> if he wasn't there, I'd be across the street eating by now. But the whole summation of it is, I'm looking forward to this weekend because these steps are the things that make alcoholism, first of all, bearable, tenable, one day preferable to drinking. Who could believe such a miracle? And all because somewhere along the line, each of us, have accepted the fact that I can't drink and I can't stay sober. And there's some power here. Jesus, where is it? It's going to make it better. I can't believe it. I'll try to do it anyway and discover that it works. Thank you.